Let's turn in the scriptures to Proverbs chapter 10. That's where we're going to start this morning in just a minute. Last week we finished the grand nine chapter introduction to Proverbs. This is a book that was written by Israel's king, Solomon, around a thousand years before Jesus. Of course, Jesus was descended from Solomon, the one who wrote this book. And Jesus was far superior in wisdom to Solomon. And Jesus, of course, was Israel's ultimate king, who wouldn't just impart wisdom like Solomon did, but he could also impart forgiveness, eternal life, and a heart change. Because he could give the Holy Spirit to to make us, to empower us to live wisely. Jesus is much greater than Solomon. Beginning today, and continuing what I hope to be, every month when we observe the Lord's table, so just every three or four weeks, my goal is to preach through Proverbs 10 to 22 as we are able to. Today we're just going to get through 14 verses. In other words, I'm going to do something I've never experienced in my life. I have never taught the Proverbs verse by verse, and I've never had the Proverbs taught to me verse by verse. I've only ever experienced the Proverbs being taught topically, which is wonderful. It's a good way of teaching Proverbs. I'm not discounting that at all. But I'm burdened to preach through Proverbs as God's written it. Now, over the years, I found Proverbs a really difficult book to preach. It's always helpful, but it's difficult. Difficult to teach for a few reasons. One is because it's Hebrew poetry, and unless you know Hebrew, you don't always get the plays on words. Another is because the audience is so different from us. It was written originally 3,000 years ago in Israel to the political class in Jerusalem. In every one of those ways, we just don't fit. We're in a different millennium, in a different country, and most of us aren't in politics. Another challenge teaching Proverbs is that the author is so flawed that makes us question almost everything that's written in the book. That's another challenging facet to it. But one of the challenges, and I've addressed this a few times in recent months, one of the challenges, and the one I want to focus on this morning, is that the Proverbs is essentially poetic law. It's the Old Testament law repeated poetically. So when God gave the law to Israel, like 400 years before Solomon, especially in Deuteronomy, if you read through Deuteronomy, the basic message of the book is, obey, and you'll be blessed with long life in the promised land. Disobey, and you'll be cursed with ejection from the promised land. You'll die. The law keeps saying, obey, and you'll be blessed. Disobey, and you'll face the curses of the law right? You say, what's so hard about that? Well, if Proverbs is basically reiterating that theme over and over, obey and you'll be blessed, disobey and you'll be cursed. If Proverbs is reiterating it, it means that we can't simply read a proverb and directly apply it to us. Because if you do that, it'll sound something like this. Okay, I'm going to read the proverb that says, Be wise with your tongue, and you'll be a source of life to others. If you directly try to apply that, you're going to do something like, 
I got to obey that. And if that's all you do, your attempt at obedience is basically going to be like driving a car into a brick wall because you don't have the power to obey it. The story of the whole Old Testament is that people couldn't obey the law. The law is not intended to drive us to ourselves to say, I gotta pick myself up, be stronger tomorrow than I was today, and just try to keep moving forward depending on strength to come from within. The law is intended to drive us to our triune God. The law is intended to drive us to God. Over the years, I have tried to summarize how Jesus and his apostles taught us to read the Old Testament law, and I've tried to teach it using three responses, each focused on one person of our triune God. I'd teach it like this. First, whenever we read the law, which includes Proverbs, we should say, God the Father, you are holy, and I'm guilty. You're holy, I'm not. You see, the law of God reveals the beauty of God and the perfections of God. When God's law commands us to be just and faithful and honest, he is revealing that he himself is just and cares about justice. He himself is faithful and cares about faithfulness. He himself is honest and cares about honesty. So when we read the law, we should first say, God, this is revealing to me what you're like, and you're holy. I'm not like you. Second, when we read the law, we should reply, God the Son, save me. Paul taught this so clearly a millennium after Solomon. The law is like a school teacher whose lesson in life is, you need Jesus. Did you get my lesson? You need Jesus. Let me say it again. You need Jesus. <laughs> the law is a schoolmaster, and the lesson of the law is, you need a savior. So if you rightly read the law, including the Proverbs, you're going to say, Jesus, you're the only one who ever perfectly embodied this wisdom that's revealed here. You're the only one who ever perfectly obeyed God. You're the only one whose righteousness earned you life. Jesus, you're the only one who can forgive me of all my foolishness. I'm naturally unwise, not wise. Jesus, I need you. The law has done its job when you say, I need Jesus. Jesus, save me. And then third, the law should drive us to God the Spirit. When we read the law and the Proverbs, we should respond, God the Spirit, control me. Give me power to obey. I can't obey in my own strength. So very simply, we're reading Deuteronomy or we're reading Proverbs rightly when it basically drives us to say, God, my Father, you're holy. You're good. You're just. You're honest. You're faithful. I worship you. I'm not like you. God the Son, I need you. Save me. God the Spirit, control me. I don't have power within myself. You need to give me strength to obey. Right? That's how we respond rightly when we read the law and when we read 
Proverbs. It's not in our power to obey. Everyone should read Proverbs and think something like this. So we're going to begin approaching Proverbs 10.1 through Proverbs 22.16, which includes, interestingly, 375 Proverbs. And we're going to commit at the outset that we're not simplistically going to read these and respond, okay, I'm going to try harder. Instead, we're going to allow these to drive us to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So I'd like to read together the first 14 verses of Proverbs 10. I'm going to offer explanations as I go, and as I go, the explanations will actually get faster. Maybe one thing I should also note, um, maybe 20 years ago, an Old Testament professor named Bruce Waltke wrote about a thousand pages on Proverbs, and he did the most careful study that I've ever read on how these groups of Proverbs, how these seemingly random Proverbs group together and flow one into the next. And so one of the things that I'm going to point out is how some of these things are grouped together, and I am very much dependent on him. Now let's read Proverbs 10.1. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. This first proverb basically says, as a child, you should care about bringing joy to your parents. Of course, this assumes that your parents love God and love you. And it applies to daughters as much as to sons. But if you're a parent, you vividly know the truth of this verse. Your child's behavior can delight you or it can grieve you. And if you're a child, this is speaking to children particularly, love for your parents should motivate your pursuit of wisdom, your pursuit of God. It should be one of the things that compels you forward to live for God. When you step back from this very first proverb of Solomon, it highlights the critical importance of family structure to the stability of an entire society. A society unravels when it has parents who don't care about their children and children who don't care about their parents. One of the marks, according to Paul in Romans 1, that God's judgment has already fallen on a society is that mom and dad aren't faithful to their commitments to each other and children are disobedient and undisciplined. So verse 1 is really wisdom for family relationships. Strong love between parents and children powerfully motivates us in the direction of godliness. I wish we had time. We will do this another time, but I wish we had time to meditate on how verse 1 applies to Jesus. Simply put, he was the one who delighted his father all the time. He wasn't like me. When I go back with my parents, I tell them about all the things that I did that they didn't know about and I got away with because I was a, a, a squirrely boy. No, Jesus always delighted his father And then he was pierced through in a way that grieved his mom. That's what she was told when he was born. A sword is going to pierce through your own soul. 
because Jesus would be crucified. He was the son who perfectly delighted his father and then grieved his mother because he died for all of us, bearing our punishment that he didn't have to. Wow. Solomon continues in verses 2 to 5 with wisdom for making money. Treasures gained by wickedness don't profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Instead, he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. I'm going to read J. Adams' translation of the next verse into it. Verse 5, He who stores in summer is a prudent son, but he who snores in harvest is a son who brings shame. You get the idea, if we knew Hebrew, that we would better get the, the brilliance of these Proverbs. He who stores in summer is prudent. He who snores in harvest brings shame. Interestingly, the positives and negatives of these four verses, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, they line up like alternating AA batteries in a kid's toy. And all four focus on earning money. According to verse 2, you can earn money through wickedness like through theft, shoplifting, or through exploitation like drug cartels or the state lottery, through trickery like scammers calling the elderly, through selling filth through so much entertainment, through dishonesty like exorbitant pricing. Earning money in all of these ways might lead you to experience a little bit of temporary pleasure because you got a little bit more cash in your pocket, but it will be eternally condemning. It will add to your indictments when you stand before God as judge. The second half of the verse teaches very clearly that money can't buy salvation. Only Jesus can save, and in fact, only righteousness can deliver from death. And according to the Bible from cover to cover, we know that it's only the righteousness of Jesus that gets imputed, credited to the, to the life, to the account of all who believe that can deliver you from death. That's because Jesus didn't redeem us with silver and gold, but with his own death. And the reason his death and only his death counts for us is because he was spotless in righteousness. Righteousness truly delivers from death. According to verse 3, especially the second half, those who live with the goal of making money will always end life still craving, still dissatisfied. Regardless of how much we amass, we will always finish our lives, if we're living for money, unsatisfied. And don't the personal lives of so many who are rich and famous constantly testify to this kind of emptiness? You read their biographies, you, you read headlines about them, and you say, they're worth like $40 million. What are they doing with all that stuff? Why are they getting involved in that? It's because money can't satisfy. The first half of verse 3, however, says that those who've been justified by God will in the end never be hungry. Because no matter how much money we die with, whether it's a little or a lot, in death we'll never be separated from what we live for. At death, those who are united with Jesus, whether rich or poor, will be immediately in his presence and will be forever satisfied. Revelation says that those who are before his throne are never hungry. Love it. Now verses 2 and 3 focus on money's emptiness in death. 
But then, interestingly, verses 4 and 5 flip it a little bit, and they describe money's value in life. There's wisdom in understanding both sides. Money's emptiness in death, as well as money's value in life. Verses 4 and 5 teach that money is inherently a good thing. It's not itself evil. Covetousness is. Living for money, like idolatry, that's bad. But money is inherently good, and wealth is generally enjoyed, we learn from verses 4 and 5, by those who work hard for it. Diligent work generally leads to wealth and honor in your community. Laziness generally results in poverty and shame. These Proverbs are really critical for our culture today because we live in a culture that's experiencing a crisis of work, an entire culture that's increasingly lazy. Such laziness will generally lead to poverty now, and it will lead eternally to condemnation. But those who repent of laziness and we cry out to Jesus for forgiveness, and we experience the Spirit's work within us to make us more like Jesus, we will grow in diligent work. We will grow from irresponsible to faithful and dependable. This is the work of the Spirit within us. Those four verses, verses 2 and 3, 4 and 5, have centered on wealth, its emptiness and death, and its value in life. The next nine are focused on the theme of speech. I would call them wisdom in communicating. Proverbs 10 centers on wisdom in communicating. Let's read these nine, and the way I unfold them on the screen behind me is actually going to show how they're structured. Verse 6, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. In other words, based on how you talk, you'll either be helped or hurt. Based on how you talk, you'll either be helped, you'll either experience blessings, or you'll be hurt. You'll experience violence. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Based on how you talk, you'll either be loved or loathed. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. In other words, based on your speech, you'll either be well-ordered or disordered. Verse 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. So based on your speech, your integrity of speech, you'll either be stable or unstable. In other words, as time goes on, people will either say, that's a guy you can trust. He's consistent. What you see is what you get. Or people will say, he's a good talker. They'll say, that guy puts on a good show. But the more you get to know him, the more the true him will come out your life will experience fallout as people discern that there's stuff behind your words. Your words aren't true. They're not trustworthy. They're not the real you. At the centerpiece of these nine verses is a solid warning in verse 10. Beware deceptive talk and beware of uncontrolled talk. 
talkativeness. The wisdom of verse 10 says, whoever winks with the eye causes trouble and a babbling fool will come to ruin. That verse sits at the center. Interestingly, the four verses before it, Waltke points this out, he says the four verses before it focus on the effects that your speech will have on you, while the next four that come after it emphasize how your speech will affect others. Verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. This verse says, based on how you talk, you'll either help others or hurt them. You'll either refresh others like a fountain, or you're going to commit verbal violence. We more frequently call it verbal abuse. You'll either help others or hurt them. Verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Based on how you talk, you're either going to escalate conflict or de-escalate it. Verse 13, on the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of the one who lacks sense. In other words, based on the way you talk, you're either going to give wisdom to others or you're going to need discipline from others. You'll either bless others with what you say or you'll need rebuke from others for what you say. Verse 14, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. In other words, based on how you talk, you'll either counsel others or you'll confuse them. Verse 14 indicates that people who help others with their words are people who study hard beforehand at how to speak. This is critical for parents, spouses, counselors, really for every follower of Jesus, to keep on studying biblical communication and what the Bible says about every kind of issue. Because generally speaking, wisdom has to be stored up before you can dispense it. You can't be a help in counsel to others if you've not first stored up wisdom in your own heart. If you're going to speak wisely on a subject when it comes up, maybe a difficult subject when it comes up, study hard beforehand. Those who are wise and give helpful counsel to others, store it up before they dispense it. That's where we're going to end our study today. Verse 14. Just before I wrap up with a review, I just want to point out back at verse 12, do you see the end of verse 12 says love covers all offenses? I want to point out, just digging a little deeper into that verse, that that verse is used, or that statement is used twice more in Proverbs and it's used twice more in the New Testament. Do you ever scratch your head and say, what does that mean to, to cover all offenses? What does it mean that those who love seek to cover sin? The two references in the New Testament in particular shed a lot of light on this. The first one is in James 5.20, where we're taught to go after straying believers. Here's what James says. Christians should pursue other believers in the church who wander from the truth in order to bring them back. James says, I'm quoting James 5.20, Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will rescue him from death 
and cover a multitude of sins, quoting Proverbs 10.12. In other words, you can see from James's inspired use of this verse in Proverbs that covering other people's offenses doesn't mean brushing them under the carpet or ignoring sins that need to be addressed. It's not the kind of covering that believers should be involved in. James actually urges us to cover sin by addressing it. Covering sin can involve confronting it. We love our Christian brothers and sisters when, when we care about them enough to say, you're straying. Would you come back? Covering sins, of course, sometimes does mean that you ignore annoyances. We don't have to address every little annoyance with our kids or every little annoyance with our brothers and sisters. We can graciously overlook and not nitpick the things that we can just live with. However, there are some sinful ways of life that if you go down that path farther, it will ruin your faith and you need a loving brother or sister to come after you. That is exactly what it means to be a church. You say, I need this accountability. I do too. We all need this sort of accountability. This is what love looks like. Another passage is in 1 Peter 4.8, where Peter tells us to keep loving other believers, even when we ourselves are suffering horrifically. Peter's words, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, quoting Proverbs 10.12. This is the way that churches keep glorifying God by our unity, especially when so many in our congregation are dealing with stress and suffering and we feel like I've got zero bandwidth to deal with other people's problems right now. What do we do? Love. We love one another. We need God the Holy Spirit, as Romans 5 puts it, to keep pouring out the love of God in our hearts for one another, even while we're suffering. And if our hearts are controlled by love, then we won't be easily offended when believers do things or say things that hurt us. We'll love them earnestly, Above all, Peter says, will warmly and with commitment keep on loving them earnestly above all. Wow. That's because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I'm moving toward conclusion, okay? The reason we should love like this is because we as humans are made. This is what it means to be human. We are made to mirror God. We're made to mirror God. The reason we should love other people and seek not to magnify their sins, but to deal with them, to be patient with them, and not blab to other people about them. The reason we should be like that is because we're mirrors made to reflect God. When we were full of sin... In love, Jesus came into the world to cover our transgressions, to deal with our sins, to die in our place. Let me tell you some reasons Jesus didn't come. He didn't come in hatred 
to escalate the tension and to prove himself right and all of us wrong. That's so often what we do when we've been offended. He didn't come to belittle us and yell at us for being so stupid. Jesus didn't come to get his revenge, to get even with us. He didn't come to gossip. He didn't come to blab on and on to his disciples about how horrible everybody was. He came in love, revealing God's love in every action and word. He came in love to die for sinners. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I urge you, hear this. God loves you. Jesus died to cover all of your sin. Not so that you could go on and act like the past never happened, but so that you could actually face your past and be forgiven of all your sin and move on from the shame of them and never fear anything in your past coming out. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need his blood to cover you. Call out to him to save you. Today we've just worked through the first half of chapter 10. Worked through just the first half of chapter 10. As we approach the Lord's table, I think it's critical that we again remind ourselves how do we respond to the Old Testament Proverbs. Well, first, as we read these statements of wisdom, we should worship God. We should say, God the Father, you are holy. I'm not. You're the perfect communicator. You're patient. You're honest. You're full of love. You're the one who loves to cover sins justly. I'm not like you. And then we should call out to Jesus, God the Son, save me, forgive me. You alone lived wisely. I haven't. You died for all of my greed and for all of my harshness and all of my dishonesty. You alone can rescue me, Jesus. Please save me. And we respond when we read the Proverbs saying, God the Spirit, control me. Might pray something like, your job, Holy Spirit, is to make me more like Jesus. And these Proverbs describe what Jesus perfectly lived like. Spirit, make me more like Jesus. The power won't come from within us. The Proverbs are written to drive us to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we're going to sing in just a minute that we praise you because our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. We thank you, Lord, for using your word to drive us to you. And we pray, God, that knowing you, the Holy One, would truly be where we find wisdom, that we would turn away from trying to find it within ourselves. And find it in knowing you, walking with you, relating to you, submitting to you, trusting you, repenting before you, begging you to give us strength. Lord, may knowing you, the Holy One, be where we find wisdom. Amen.